Last week, Pastor James showed us through uh, Scripture the importance of being prepared for Christ's return. We can sometimes forget he's going to come back, if not in our mind, but in our hearts and the things that we choose to do. We don't sometimes act like we're ready for his return. But it's important to be prepared. And as we continue our study through uh, the, the book of 1 Peter, by God's grace, we'll be looking at the importance of preparing for the storm, a related topic to preparing for Christ's return. And it's a bit of an un, uninted, unintended trilogy of messages. This is the third part. I taught a message a few years ago called In a Storm, Don't Bail, about how we as Christians are to work through and go through and grow through storms in our lives. Back in July of 2019, I gave a message called After the Storm, Hope. And so now we're going to be looking at what happens before the storm. I love all of Scripture, but I'm especially fond of instructional epistles. I'm a guy, I like to do things. And instructional epistles give me things to do. So I'm like all over First Peter because there's so much that the Lord's Word shows us of what we're to do. So with that, we're going to continue reading and studying through First Peter. And so if you have a Bible, please open it to First Peter chapter 1 will be in verse 17 to 21. And it's written, And if you call on him as Father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. Quite a bit there. And you may not have realized this, but the entire Bible reveals God's character, man's condition, and the good news of the Lord Jesus Christ. The entire Bible. And in this first chapter alone, Peter has cycled through these three times before we get to verse 17. God, with regard to God's character, we see his power in verse 3, his mercy in verse 5, and his holiness in verse 15. And with regards to man's condition, we see our inability to save ourselves in verse 3, trials in verse 6, and ignorance in verse 14. And with regard to the gospel, we see the sprinkled blood in verse 2, the resurrection in verse 3, and the revelation of Jesus Christ in verse 7 and 13. When I study scripture, I'm like a toddler. 
Now, let me explain. This might have happened to you. I've had a couple of these type of conversations with toddlers in the past. And it goes something like this. I got to sit down. And the toddler will say, why? Well, my back hurts. Why? Because I was cutting grass. Why? Because the grass grew tall. Why? Because it rained a lot. Why? Because clouds gathered the moisture in the atmosphere together. Why? Go ask your mom. <laughs> Why? Because I have to sit down. Why? I'm, I'm sure that's happened to you at some point. Love it. And that's me when I approach Scripture. I'm, I go to Abba, Abba Father and I say, why? Why did Peter remind the church so much through this letter? Because he wanted believers to be prepared. You know what's coming next, right? Why? Why did he want the church to be prepared? Why do you want believers to be prepared? I think Peter's denial of Jesus stuck with him the rest of his life. Yes, Jesus restored him that morning on the beach. We're all familiar with it in the Gospel of John. Jesus restored Peter that morning. But he remembered the pain. Peter remembered the pain he felt when he denied Jesus that ter- third time. In Luke 22:62, it is written that Peter wept bitterly. It impacted him. It stayed with him. How many times do we go through a trial or a storm in our life and it has such an impact on us that the lasting effect and memory of that carries through for the rest of our lives? I think it was the same for Peter here. So Peter wanted believers to be prepared for the persecution that was starting to come to fruition at that time and the greater persecution to come later on. And he wanted them to stand firm in the faith and not falter. Peter's care and concern reflects God's character. God doesn't lie. He doesn't deceive. He warns in advance. In Genesis chapter 2, verse 16, it is written, And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. That's a warning. We fast forward all the way through to Revelation chapter 2, 22, verse 18 the third or fourth verse to the end of all of Scripture, it's written, I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book. Right there he's saying, I warn. So it's a warning. If anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his share in the tree of life and in the holy city, which are described in this book. So from Genesis to Revelation and everywhere in between, 
God is always warning people and giving advance notice. And God has generally two purposes for why he gives that advance notice. The first is for believers. And it provides time to get ready. Be ready for the storms in our lives. Be ready for the trials and troubles and tribulations that are here now and are to come. And as the Lord's return draws near, storms are going to get stronger and can cause some believers to fall away. For the last 17 years, there has been an increasing rate of suicide. It's growing year after year. No one's paying a lot of attention to it, but it is at an alarming rate. And it's even, it's even greater, slightly greater, within the Christian church. Recently, I was made aware of a, 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 a pastor acquaintance of mine who took his own life and left behind a young family. These are dark times. The Lord's in control, but we need to be ready. We need to set our minds on things above. Set our hearts on the Lord. So be ready. Be ready for Christ's return, as we saw last week. Be ready for the persecution that is here and will come. And be ready to share the gospel. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15. Lord willing, we'll see that in a couple of weeks. But it, it reads this way. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who gives, who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect. And we even prayed that a few moments earlier as Pastor Joe led us in that prayer and sharing the gospel. Be prepared, be ready. Persecution is coming. And no, the lockdowns from the pandemic were not it. It was a foreshadowing, though, of what it's going to look like when it really is persecution against the church and the church alone. And we'll know it. But we need to be ready. And the time to get ready is before it happens, not while it's happening. So praise the Lord, we're at the exit of this pandemic, and now we have time to move forward in ministry and serving and discipling and equipping. We need to make use of the time. Redeem the time for the days are evil, God's word says. So we've got to be ready. The other general reason why God provides advance warning is for unbelievers. Provide time to repent. We see back in Genesis how God gave mankind 120 years to repent before the flood came. And we're getting a little impatient about the Lord coming in the next year or two. If, you know, come on, Lord, we could do it now, right? 120 years passed as Noah was building the ark. God doesn't immediately smite unbelievers for their sin. He gives them time to repent. He gave us time to repent. I praise the Lord that he was patient with me to the point 
where all the time it took, 40 years, for me to repent and believe. I'm thankful for his patience. I'm thankful for the advance warning he gives. One reason why Jesus hasn't returned yet is to give people time to repent and believe. And if you haven't done that yet, repent today. Today's the day. Because there's one guarantee. Tomorrow is coming. There will be a tomorrow. What's not guaranteed is that you're going to be here to see it. That's the truth. Now, in talking about preparation, it might be helpful to have an illustration of preparing, something that we can relate to. I was going to use preparing for a snowstorm or a hurricane, which are things back east. Don't make too much sense here in Arizona. I would have mentioned the monsoons, but we don't seem to have those anymore. But many of us have taken trips. So let's use that as an example. And the first step to preparing anything is taking inventory. Know who you are. Know what you have. Know your strengths. Know your weaknesses. When you take a trip, you need to know how much money you have. You need to know how much time you have. What's going to be your mode of transportation? Are you going to walk? Are you going to drive? Are you going to fly? If I'm going to drive, is my car reliable enough to make the trip? Am I able to physically drive that distance? That's part of the things that we do before we actually take a trip, I hope. So to prepare for the storms of, of, to prepare for the storms in our lives or the persecution to come, knowing who we are in Christ is vitally important. Almost every time I counsel someone, there's a lack of understanding of who they are in Christ that's at its root, almost every time. And over the years, I've collected those verses that I've shared with those I've counseled to paint a picture of who we are in Christ. 42 elements of who we are in Christ when we repent and believe. If anyone's interested in that, please come and see me. Let me know. I'd like to gauge the interest and how we can best make that resource available. But not knowing who we are in Christ can cause us to just wander and drift. And we need, to, we need to know. We need to know that we know. So let's look at verse 17 a little closer. And if you call on him as Father who judges impartially, according to each one's deed, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. See a few things right here about man's, a believer's condition and position just in this one verse. who judges impartially. God's holy standard applies to all people. His standard of righteousness still applies to us, even after we've been saved. The Lord still expects us to be obedient to his word. In Luke chapter 10, verse 25, 
And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And he said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. We're to love God and love others. Still called to do that even as believers. So who's your neighbor? And Jesus went on uh, to explain the parable of the Good Samaritan as an example of who a neighbor is. And the world has a skewed view of what it means to love others. Even those who do not believe that God exists will go to point to the parable of the Good Samaritan and say, you all people need to be doing this. And I gently and respectfully reply to them that, yes, that is true. This is what we're to do for all people. But let me point you to a few verses, just one verse earlier than that, where it says to love God. This person didn't believe in God. I said, well, let's get that right first and everything else will flow from that. No argument, no debate. Seed was planted, conversation shut down immediately. We need to get things in proper order. There are, the world likes to just grab and pick and choose the scriptures that suit their agenda and that's taken out of context and without the greater understanding of who God is. And we need to be wise and careful and loving and correcting them in that. And sometimes in response, we might overcorrect from what the world is trying to use and hijack the parable of the Good Samaritan. And that might cause us to be judgmental and determine whether or not a person is worthy of them being loved as I love myself. Well, Scripture doesn't say that. So we have to be careful of the overcorrection. Just land on what God's Word says. Verse 18 knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. And so here we see, believers are not like unbelievers. We have been rescued. We've been ransomed. Yes, God's holy standard applies to all people, the price of sin is the same for all. The price of my sin as a believer costs just as much as the price of the sin of the person who is an unbeliever. However, the price of our sin as believers has been paid for. We're free from the future penalty and punishment for that sin. For our sin. That truth sets us free. But should also, also cause us to fear sinning more. 
because we know the consequences of those sins. We know what they would be for us personally if we weren't saved. That should cause us to be more more sensitive to our sin, not callous. Unbelievers don't know. So they just go on sinning without care. Even if we were to point out that they are breaking God's law and the things that they do, they don't care because they're not concerned with the consequences of their behavior and decisions. Verse 20. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. Jesus eternally existed in the past. There was never a time when Jesus did not exist. But he came to earth in human form at his appointed time. He's God. He's not a created being. And I'd like to just note the last phrase in that verse, your faith and hope are in God. Believers are equipped with faith and hope. And we saw this last week as well. So this is kind of, kind of repetition. I believe that the Lord wants his people to be reminded a few times. There might be a few with, you know, as my grandmother would say, testadura, thick head in Italian. It might need a, another one or two messages about the, the truth that all believers have faith and hope given to them by the Lord himself. God gave us the faith to believe. When we, we, when we repented and believed, that wasn't our own faith. The Holy Spirit gave us that faith. And through sanctification, he grows our faith. Now, hope is an interesting word. It has two different but related definitions. Now, I'm going to give you the clinical definition, so it's going to be dry and kind of not very spiritual, but there's a spiritual application. We see hope first as a noun, you know, a person, place, or thing. It's joyful confidence in the certainty of a future positive outcome. Hope as a noun is found in verse, verses 3, 13, and 21 of this first chapter of First Peter. In those, th- in those three verses, hope is a noun. It's a thing. It's a thing we have. Next is hope as a verb. And that's to desire a positive outcome of an uncertain future. Here's an example. Oh, I heard Joey was in an accident, but I don't know how he's doing. I hope he's okay. In that sentence, I hope, is a verb. It's an action. And we see that in Scripture. 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verse 7. For I, do not want to see, for I do not want to see you now just in passing. I hope to spend some time with you if the Lord permits. Here the Apostle Paul is telling the Corinthians his desire is to be with them, but it's 
uncertain if you'll actually be able to do it. Another example is Philemon chapter 1, verse 22. At the same time, prepare a guest room for me, for I am hoping that through your prayers I will be graciously given to you. There again, the Apostle Paul is expressing his desire to, to be there, but uncertain that it will actually happen. People have hope in all sorts of things. They have hope in their 401k. They have hope in their finances. They have hope in their job. They have hope in their families. They have hope in their health. They place their hope in a lot of things. But true hope, hope is a noun, a thing, is only possible with God. Because God is the perfect promise keeper. He is sovereign and he is omnipotent and he can do and will do everything he said he's going to do. There is no question that what he says will pass, will pass. No question at all. So true hope is only found in God. Unbelievers don't have this hope because their hope is in everything but God. Faith and hope. Faith is for now. Hope motivates us today with current action for the future. It is my prayer that we're all driven today to follow Christ for that hope that we have of being home in heaven with him to please him because we're going to see him. When we're in heaven, we won't need faith because we'll, we'll be with, with Christ right there. This is something that might be helpful. Faith fills the gap of time between when we pray and when God answers. You're waiting for the answer. You've prayed to the Lord, you have a need. That's where faith comes in. The moment, the moment we end our prayer and we wait for the Lord's answer, that's where our faith kicks in. We trust that God exists. We trust that he's listening. We trust that he has the power. And we trust in his character, that he's holy and he's good and he's kind, and he's merciful, and gracious, and all the list of his attributes. Another element of being prepared is to be confident and sure of what we know. How things act, how things react. We know gravity exists. We know that the laws of physics are consistent and predictable, when taking a trip by plane, there's some things we really need to be confident about, like how soon before our flight do we need to be at the airport? We need to be confident that we know what documents we need. Is a passport or a driver's license going to be correct? We need to be confident about the weight limit of our suitcases if we check them in. How many times have you checked in and seen people open up their suitcase and pull out army boots and things that are loading down their suitcase to get under the weight. They didn't know the weight of their suitcase before they made that trip or didn't know what the limit was of the airline they were flying. 
if we're taking a trip by car. We need to know how we're going to get to where we're going. That doesn't seem like such a big deal today with smartphones and GPS and Google Maps, but there was a time before smartphones. We had something called maps, paper maps. They were very small. They were smaller than this sheet of paper, but they were folded like 20 different ways. And when you made a trip, you needed to have a navigator. The person in the front seat in the passenger side was designated navigator. They had the map, and they had to unfold it. And this thing defied the law of physics, because when it's unfolded, it's like 10 square feet, you know, 10 by 10. And the poor driver is trying to look through the, the unfolded map on the dashboard. And it was always the case that the, the city that you wanted was on the other side of the map, so you had to like flip the whole map over and hope that the map was up to date and there weren't new roads that were there. I won't even get into trying to fold that map back up into its original form. That was never happening. But, but that's just the, the, the destination, how to get from A to B. What about, I'm going to need a gas station. I'm driving to New York from Arizona. I, I'm going to fill up a couple of times. Today, we just say, hey, Google, where's the nearest gas station? I thought somebody had their phone left on. If you're an Android, that would have activated it and here Google start giving us the description of the nearest gas station. But we didn't have that back then. So we had to plan. We had to know what our gas mileage is, how far can we go, and then identify those gas stations along the way. Lots of preparation for a trip that we take for granted today. And it's the same way in our life with Christ and the coming storm. We need to be prepared. In verse 18, Peter reminds them they know the foundation of their salvation. If you want to see where this, I, be, I believe it first started, please turn to the Gospel of John chapter 6. We'll be towards the end of chapter 6. And this is Jesus speaking in the Gospel of John, chapter 6, starting in verse 63. It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. And he said, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So Jesus said to the twelve, Do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. If you're inclined to write in your Bible, 
I would recommend that you underline the word believed and underline come to know. Peter and the disciples believed and have come to know that Jesus is the Holy One of God. Peter's declaration shows that it's a process. We can grow. It starts with believe and matures into know, knowing. Belief is faith that has not yet been tested. But knowing is faith that stands after being tested. So where does that belief start? It starts with God's word. Romans 10, 17. So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. We first came to faith because of God's word. We heard God's word and the Holy Spirit used that to convict us and cause us to repent and believe. You might have heard it been said, God said it, I believe it, that settles it. Now, that is a great way to start our new life in Christ. Not so much to end it that way. We need to grow beyond that. Beyond just belief. And here's some, here's some examples from Peter himself. In 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 2, Like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation. And then in 2 Peter 3.18, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Peter was big on growing, not getting stagnant and staying where he's at. Because he saw growth in his own life. I relate so much to the Apostle Peter. We see in the Gospels, he has a big heart, he's zealous, stumbles and fumbles puts his foot in his mouth. But he didn't stay there. The Lord grew him and used him powerfully in sharing of the gospel. Peter grew. The Lord wants us to grow and not stay where we're at. Our belief grows as our understanding of God's word grows. Jesus often pointed back to what happened in the past. The entire Old Testament can be summed up as God showing the world who he is. The Lord didn't explain himself in the Old Testament. How many times have we read in Old Testament historical narrative, God says something, and as like toddlers, the nation of Israel would say, Why? And the Lord responds, because I am the Lord. He was just, he was letting mankind know who he is. In Luke chapter 11, verse 49, therefore also, this is, this is Jesus. 
He's the speaker here. Therefore, also the wisdom of God said, I will send them prophets and apostles, some of whom they will kill and persecute, so that the blood of all the prophets shed from the foundation of the world may be charged against this generation. From the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah, who perished between the altar and the sanctuary. Yes, I tell you, it will be required of this generation. All of the Old Testament prophets warned. They warned. It's interesting to note that Abel was the first martyr in the book of Genesis. Zechariah was the last martyr in the book of 2 Chronicles, which when taken in chronological order, is the last book of the Old Testament. So we have Abel as the first, Zechariah as the last, Abel, A, Zechariah, Z, A to Z. That's God's word. We see God's track record with the nation of Israel and the ancient nations of those times. And that all results in knowing. Knowing as a result of God's word applied to our lives and God's personal track record with us individually. Peter's come to know statement is a result of his firsthand experience with Jesus. He heard what Jesus said. He saw what Jesus did. He saw how others responded to Jesus. He saw Jesus' miracles, the healings, the feeding of the 5,000, the casting out of demons, the walking on water, all of that Peter and the transfiguration. Peter was witness to all of that. It comes from firsthand experience. For us, our belief matures into knowing when we study God's word, we apply it to our lives, and we see God keep his promises. The Lord sustains us through the storms and trials of our lives the hardships that we experience and endure. When we thought there wasn't a solution, God made a way. As early believers, we heard, Jesus will never leave us. He will never forsake us. And as a new Christian, I believed it because God's word said it. But when the storms and the trials hit me, and I went through and grew through those storms. I came out the other side believing and have come to know, yes, Jesus will never leave me or forsake me. That's the knowing. It comes through applying God's word, trusting in him through the storm, through the hardship, and coming out the other side. And now we no longer believe, we know. How many of us have had tragedy in our lives and we've had unbelievers look at us and say, how are you still standing? Why aren't you in a, rolled up in a ball crying on the floor? Because it's so devastating. And the answer is, because of the Lord Jesus Christ. He is with me. Because we know. It's not, it's not prideful or arrogant to claim to know things. We know Jesus will never leave us or forsake us. We know that. His word said it, and he's demonstrated that in our lives. It's okay to know that. 
There are some things we're just going to have to trust in faith and believe until we're in heaven and we actually see the rest of the story. But there are things as we grow in sanctification that we can know. And that is growing our faith. Helpful to know that knowing is not enough. After placing all this emphasis on knowing, now I'm saying it's not enough. Well, Peter knew that Jesus is the Christ, and he still ended up denying him three times. Knowing is important, but is not sufficient. We have to apply what we know. I was speaking with a brother this morning before service and discussing knowledge and wisdom and the difference. And I said, knowledge is knowing that tomato is a fruit. Wisdom is knowing that you don't put it in a fruit salad. So we have to, it's not enough, we have to apply what we know. And so how do we prepare for the persecution to come? How do we prepare for the storms that might already be here for some of us today? The answer is to put our faith into action. We can't be passive. We can't be reactive and allow life just to happen to us. We have to be an active participant in our lives. So how do we do that? Well, there are five basic elements, five basic things we can do to put our faith into action, and we'll take a look at a few. The first is study God's Word. Not just read it, study it. Answer these following questions. What does it say about God's character? What does it say about man's condition? What does it say about the good news of Jesus Christ? And how will I respond to what I just read? Don't move on to the next section of your Bible reading plan until you've answered those questions on on the section you've just read. It's so important. I'll leave you with this warning. Loved ones, if, if there's only one thing you take away from this message this morning, I pray it's this thing I'm about to say right now. Chronic inaction in response to studying God's word will result in callous indifference to it. Let me repeat that. Chronic inaction in response to studying God's word will result in callous indifference to it. That means if after spending time in God's word, you don't think, speak, or act differently than you did before you read that, that's a warning sign. Every time we approach God's word, we should expect to be changed. Many of our brothers and sisters have just made it part of the tradition and habit to have a Bible reading plan. That in and of itself is not wrong. It's good. It's a good thing to have a plan. Especially, I know that because I'm a planner. I love plans. And I know it's not officially a plan until it changes. Because plans always change. 
but do not move on beyond what you've just read until you can answer those questions. Have a sensitivity to God's word. The next way is praise and prayer. If you've been around a canyon for any amount of time, you know you're not surprised that I would put praise first. Because we should spend more time in praise before we even ask him for anything. We have so much to be thankful for. Many times I start my morning time with the Lord in praise and never get to my requests. Because time, is, time to move on with the day is there and I haven't stopped thanking him for things. I can, tomorrow will be around to ask, for, ask him for those things tomorrow. Praise and prayer. We have so many reasons to be thankful. And when we do pray, ask in humility. Ask with the proper motive. To see God glorified, others blessed. Ask for things that line up with his will. Don't ask God to do something that contradicts his word. He's not going to answer it. And ask in faith. Ask believing that he will answer that prayer. And not just in the way we expect him or want him to answer. We always ask him for a yes. Lord, can I do this or can I have that? Sometimes he'll say no. Accept the no as lovingly and joyfully as the yes. I don't have time this morning to explain why we should be joyful, more joyful when the Lord says no than when he says yes. Lord willing, there'll be another time for that. But we should be more thankful when he says no than when he says yes. Third way is fellowship. Spend time with other believers. Studying God's word, sharing what, God's word, what God is doing in your life. Pray for one another, serve one another. And the best way to do that here at Canyon is in our koinonia groups. If Canyon Bible Church is your church home and you're not currently active in a koinonia group, you're missing out. You really are. You see, Sunday morning worship service isn't the end. It's only the beginning. We have student ministries during the week. We have koinonia groups during the week. We're going to have even more uh, discipleship and equipping opportunities. Sunday morning is only the beginning. On occasion, someone will leave Canyon and claim that this is not a loving church. And as Pastors, shepherds of the flock, that hurts us. It really grieves our heart. Whether it's true or not, if it's not true, it grieves our heart that they didn't see the love that we have here. And if it is true, well, we need to repent. But one thing, one common theme that I have seen in those accusations is that those people were not actively participating in a koinonia group. That's where we love one another. That's where we're caring for one another on a day-in, day-out basis. Not just in studying the Word, but praying for one another, serving one another. I visited many of the Koinonia groups, even I have, and what we saw there is nothing but loving and welcoming. And not just because we were there, because we're here. The groups are even more crazy and loving when we're not there. So, if you're not in a Koinonia group, Get plugged into one. 
because not only will you receive the love of the brothers and sisters, you're going to have an opportunity to love brothers and sisters too. It's a two-way street. One another's means each one of the one another's is doing the one another. That makes any sense. So be in fellowship. Serve. Selflessly serve others. Serve in the church. Serve your koinonia group. When we give of our time and talents and treasures, we fulfill the great commandment. And we're also reminded of all that the Lord has given us. It's all his. Everything we have is his. We're just called to be stewards of it, whether it's our time, our money, the objects that we have, the, the gifts, the, the talents that we have, the, the abilities that we have. It's all from the Lord. We're just to be good stewards. And so when we share that, we're reminded, oh yeah, I do have this extra chair I can give to somebody. Oh yeah, I know how to fill in the blank. And there's a need. So when we serve, we are reminded of all that the Lord has given us. And last on this list, but not least, is to evangelize, share the gospel. One of the greatest reasons why we're still here is to share the gospel. We are to, to advance the cause of Christ. And it's a thing we can do to strengthen our faith because being ready to share means we're always thinking about the cross and we're always thinking about other people. If after you leave this afternoon and you end up in Safeway and you have an opportunity to share the gospel with someone, are you ready? Are you ready to share the gospel? Be prepared. Be ready. More and more people are feeling helpless and hopeless. I don't know if you've seen that. There's a lot of anxiety. Depression is on the rise. As I mentioned earlier, suicides are on the rise. They They feel like they have no one to turn to. And there are some who say that we Christians, we disciples of Christ, are known primarily for the things that we're against. The political ideologies that we're against. The cultural practices that we're against. Some are claiming we're against science. I can't fault them too much because there's a growing number of Christians who are denying that we actually landed men on the moon. And there are Christians growing in number who believe the earth is flat. I've mentioned this before. It's, it's happening. That is what others are telling me. People who are not believers are telling me they think of, of who Christians are, what we're against, and, and we don't appear to be joyful. We appear to be angry, defense, defensive, and joyless. So whether intentional or not, we're putting up walls between ourselves and the very people that Jesus wants us to reach. We're to be messengers of hope. We even have a ministry called 
Hope Ministries. Their only hope is in Jesus. And we're the only ones who will tell them. You realize that? The world, the unbelieving world is not going to tell the helpless and hopeless that their true hope is in Jesus. They're going to say, no, go go buy some pharmaceuticals, go buy some other mood-altering items. That's where hope is found. They're not going to direct hearts and minds to Jesus. We're the only ones that are going to do it. And that's Jesus' plan. So I want to leave us with this last thought. The gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, transforms hope, the word hope, from a verb to a noun. Kind of an odd way to put it. But if you look back at the definitions, before we were saved, hope was a verb. We had the desire to go to heaven. And we didn't know if we were going to get there. It was uncertain whether we were going to get there. Gee, I wonder if I'm, good, if I'm a good enough person to get into heaven. That's the mindset of someone who's not saved. For them, as it was for us in the past, hope is a verb. But now, after we've repented and believed and we have our new life in Christ, hope is a noun, is a thing that we have, is a joyful assurance of what's to come. Is hope a verb for you? There's anyone here who, for you personally, hope is a verb, is a desire for something, but you're not sure you're going to get there. And to you I say, it doesn't have to be that way. You can have the assurance. You desire to be reconciled to God, have your sins paid for, have a new heart, have the Holy Spirit in you, have a new home in heaven, be right with God, that can happen today. For those of you where hope is a noun, praise the Lord. That joyful assurance, certainty of a future event that is guaranteed for us who repented and believed. Don't let the world, the enemy, or even our own flesh tell us otherwise. Don't let them cast doubt, uncertainty, and fear into the things that we know. We believe and have come to know certain things about the Lord and our new life in Christ and our future destination. We should have a holy boldness and a humble certainty and above all, be joyful. Please join me in prayer. Father in heaven, it is so encouraging for us, your children, who have repented of our sins, repented of our rebellion, turned from those things and turned to you, Lord Jesus, as our Savior and the Lord of our lives, knowing that your shed blood on the cross paid for our sin. And you were buried for three days. And when you rose on the third day, you rose from the grave, you've given us eternal life. Death has no hold on you. And because of 
your sacrifice and your resurrection, death has no hold on us who have repented and believed. That is why we should be the most joyful people because we have that assurance. Lord, I do pray for our brothers and sisters who who are suffering, who are going through a storm and trial this very moment. We even prayed for some of them this morning. Lord, would you have a powerful work in their situations? We know you're omnipresent. You'll never leave them or forsake them. Reveal yourself in a powerful way for them. Give them that encouragement. Grow them in that, that they would be joyful in the midst of such difficult circumstances. Lord, for those of us who are not currently facing a storm, we thank you for this time of rest. May we embrace the rest, rejuvenate the rest, and prepare ourselves for the storm to come, because there will be a storm coming. If we're not currently in a storm, we will be. Your word has told us that. That we would not be fearful, that we would know and be prepared. Lord, for those who, the word hope is a verb. They have a desire. Holy Spirit, you're touching hearts right now and drawing those who would repent and believe. But they have that desire to know, to have that assurance. May this be the day for them where they repent and believe and receive all that you have for those who repent and believe. So, Lord, as we look to the coming days and weeks, draw us closer to you. We need to be close to you. We need to be prepared, not out of fear, but out of a confident joy that we have because you are sovereign and you promised you would never leave us or forsake us. And we believe and have come to know that that is true. All for your glory, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.